I would like to give thanks to the ancestors, known and unknown, those who have paved the way for us to survive this moment of time and to have a reference point to use as a blueprint to deal with these hellish times we are living in. I would also like to give honor and reverence to the woman of the universe for your superior work, for bringing forth the spiritual information through the triple stage of darkness of your womb and giving birth to God. We would like to give reverence to the universe and praises to the indigenous. My name is Raheem Shabazz and this is Necessary Blackness Podcast. Necessary Blackness Podcast, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. with award-winning journalist and filmmaker Raheem Shabazz. This podcast is only for those who are unapologetic because the mind of the conscious man or woman recognizes no monopoly on truth. Truth is relative and always to be sought. Hey, Atlanta, have you heard? True Laundry Detergent is now offering free shipping in the Atlanta area. Just text the word TRUE to 404-493-0523 or give us a call. That's 404-493-0523. True Detergent is four times concentrated and perfect for those HE washers. Just one ounce removes dirt, brightens fabrics, and leaves each load with a clean, fresh scent. Best of all, True contains no animal products, and it's safe for sensitive skin. Follow us on social media, True Detergent ATL. Award-winning producer Raheem Shabazz continues the Elementary Genocide documentary series with the School to Prison Pipeline. That film exposes the social engineering done to African-American children in the school system. And his other film, Elementary Genocide 2, The Board of Education versus The Board of Incarceration, takes an even deeper look at the history of the American school system and how it was made to justify subjugating black Americans. These films are on track to be the most discussed films in black America. These films feature people like Dr. Boyce Watkins, Dr. Francis Kretz Welsing, and many, many more. The documentary is available right now at elementarygenocide.com. That's elementarygenocide.com. Get your haircut with the latest styles today at Man Cave Barber and Beauty Salon. We're located in the city of Marietta at 903 Roswell Street. Ask for Robbie. Robbie's our general manager of our barbershop. Again, that's Man Cave Barber and Beauty Salon, 903 Roswell Street in the beautiful city of Marietta, Georgia, where you can get all the latest cuts and styles, you know, so you can be looking fresh to death. Man Cave Barber and Beauty Salon. The creators of Elementary Genocide Part 1, The School to Prison Pipeline, and Part 2, The Board of Education versus The Board of Incarceration, present the third installment, Academic Holocaust. Each film produced, directed, and personally funded by writer Raheem Shabazz. 
Hollywood Chronicles says the documentary Elementary Genocide turns a critical eye towards the dehumanizing educational environment that criminalizes black and brown youth by funneling them from schools to prisons. As the third installment to the critically acclaimed series nears completion, we're looking to our legion of supporters to help us reach the finish line by making a donation today. If you've learned anything, shared any content, or have received any value from the Elementary Genocide brand, you're going to love Elementary Genocide 3, featuring the likes of Kaba Kemi, David Banner, Shahad Razad Ali, Michael M. Hotep, and Professor James Small. To help spread this important message to the masses, visit elementarygenocide.com or search Elementary Genocide 3 on Indiegogo.com and make your contribution today. That's elementarygenocide.com or Indiegogo.com. If you're unable to donate, please share our cause with your family and friends. Peace and power, black family. This is episode number 14 of Necessary Blackness Podcast, and I'm your host, Raheem Shabazz. Today, we're going to talk about education and being fearless and how education is the great equalizer. We're going to discuss a lot of things, what's going on in the news, what didn't make the news, and everything else. Now, not being afraid and living life fearlessly in a pursuit of happiness is not something you ask for or you seek permission for. You just got to do it. That's one of the things that we lack is that some of us do not have the fortitude, the determination, or the motivation to just go out and pursue it unapologetically. Now, when I talk about not being afraid, I'm talking about the audacity to not be scared. Don't be afraid is written in the Bible 365 times, a daily reminder from God to live every day fearlessly. Now, when I speak of God, I am not talking about no pie in the sky. We don't deal with the pie in the sky religion over here. I'm talking about the divine energy that exists within us. So when we pursue education, we have to pursue education and be fearlessly about it. Now, we always have to look at history. So when we go back to the 1800s, we got Carter G. Woodson, who was born the son of a slave. He worked in the coal mines in West Virginia. At the age of 20, he entered high school and finished in two years. After getting a master's degree, he completed the coursework for a PhD at Harvard in a year. Now, how many people can do that within a year? Not many. In 1875, we have Mary Bethune, who worked in the cotton fields of South Carolina and was one of 17 children born to former slaves. She was the only child to attend school, where she excelled exceedingly fast. Eventually, she opened up her own school and hospital for blacks. Then we have Benjamin E. Mays, who was the son of a sharecropper, born into slavery and worked in the tobacco fields in South Carolina. He was 21 years old. Before he even went to high school, he went on to be called the great schoolmaster of America and the top advisor to Martin Luther King Jr. They was fearless. They didn't make excuses for what was going on in that particular time. Now, many of us that go to school today, we don't even face half 
of the resistance, the pushback that they did. Yes, we're dealing with the school to prison pipeline, but they was dealing with the slave master, Jim Crow laws, the segregation laws, but they still was able to exert themselves because they knew that through education, everything imaginable was possible. And I recently spoke at Crawford Long Middle School here in Atlanta. This was the message that I gave them. You know, I told them about our history and how during the time of slavery, it was forbidden for us to read. You know, a lot of us are not reading. And that's why the illiteracy rate of today's generation is at an all-time low. So you got to imagine how important reading is. They knew that reading was their way out of servitude and to seek higher achievement. And let's be mindful, the, the three things that they had in common is that the education that they did receive, they took it and they used it to advance their race of people. And that's what we have to do today. That's what we have to do tomorrow. And that's what we have to do from this day on. Our great grandmaster teacher, Dr. Amos Wilson, tells us in the falsification of African consciousness that the education that we receive from the Europeans is one that make us dumb, welfare that keep us poor, religion that sends us to hell, and foreign aid to African that keeps Africa in poverty. You have to understand, the open enemy does not give you an education to empower you. If anything, it makes you a servant on his plantation the corporation that you work at the nine to five that you get up every morning and go to that is the plantation of today your desk is your 40 acres and your mule is your computer we have to step off of this plantation and become entrepreneurs and self-sufficient and start doing for self and also to pull our resources and one way of doing that is by being educated and it's each one to teach one my name is Raheem Shabazz and this is Necessary Blackness Podcast persons interested in broadcasting a commercial can reach us via email at necessaryblacknesspodcast at gmail.com Necessary Blackness is distributed on all major podcast platforms iTunes, Stitcher, iHeart, SoundCloud, Podomatic, and Google Play. We'll also promote your business and product across our various social media networks, reaching over 100,000 people daily. On April 13th through Sunday the 15th, Voice Walkings will be in Atlanta for the Black Economic Empowerment Tour. Make sure you come out. He's going to be joined by several of his friends. Zaza Ali, Lamont and Ronnie Taylor, founder of Black and Married with Kids, myself, filmmaker Raheem Shabazz, rapper Killer Mike, Dave Anderson from the Empowerment Radio Network. And this event will be at the Black Shrine of Madonna. And you also can go online right now to Eventbrite and get a 20% discount on your tickets and make sure that you share this. Send it to friends and invite everybody to come out. Once again, that's April 13th through the 15th. That's Thursday through Sunday. Don't meet me there. Beat me there. Back to business. Okay, we're back and we're going to talk about the higher education cartel. 
which is nothing more than going to school for 12 years only to acquire a student loan, accumulating debt, and working for minimum wage at Walmart. When we look at the public school system, right, we see that the public school is an extension of the church. Public school was created by the church, and the purpose of public school is not to teach children on how to think. It's to teach them what to believe. Education is nothing more than religious indoctrination. White supremacy is the religion, and the schools are the church for the religion of white supremacy. That's why it's important that we educate ourselves. Self-education is the best education. Malcolm X, he was self-educated. Malcolm X said that we are the only people to allow our open enemy to educate us. We have to start educating our children at home and develop home schools. We have to start enrolling our children in Afrocentric schools where they get education that resonates with their spirit and not this European whitewash education that we know of today and that's being taught in the public school system. I'm going to be speaking about this subject and more at the East Atlanta Boys and Girls Club this Friday, April 7th, and the address is 1839 Phillips Road, Lithonia, Georgia, 30058 and that's from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. This is a family event. It's free and open to the public. We're going to do a screening of Elementary Genocide, the School to Prison Pipeline, followed by a lecture from yours truly. Make sure you come out. That's this Friday, April 7th, and that's in Lithonia at the East Atlanta Boys and Girls Club. Tune in for the drop. I am Dr. Kira Taylor, and when I'm tired of listening to fake news, I will listen to some real news, and I will check into the Necessary Blackness podcast with my friend Raheem Shabazz. Raheem Shabazz is one of my guys from way back, and you're now listening to his show, Necessary Blackness Podcast. Stay tuned. This is Akua of Cultivated Roots Media, and I choose to tune in to Necessary Blackness because staying connected to my blackness is very necessary. You're checking out the king, Raheem Shabazz, on Necessary Blackness. Peace. This is Prince Coach Law, and I stay tuned into Necessary Blackness Podcast with Raheem Shabazz. Peace and power. This is E-Reporting Live, and you're tuned in to Necessary Blackness with my boy Raheem Shabazz. Yo, that's what I'm talking about, man. You'll hear it here first. <laughs> now our feature presentation. Peace and power, black family. This is Necessary Blackness Podcast, and I'm your host, Raheem Shabazz, and I'm sitting here with Ebony G., And we're going to talk about the situation that's happening in Atlanta. It has made national news. As many of y'all know, a portion of I-85 has been destroyed. It has collapsed due to a fire that is being used as a scapegoat. Um, An individual actually is being used as a scapegoat. And his name is Basil uh, Ellaby. And I hope I'm pronouncing his name correct. And like I said, he's being used as a a political scapegoat. What are your thoughts on that? Tell me what you think. Well, I think you're 100% right. He is absolutely being used as a political scapegoat. Um, I think we need to address 
the number one issue, which is why is the DOT allowing flammable and harmful materials to be stored under public roadways and bridges and overpasses without, first of all, they shouldn't be there. But secondly, why are they unsecured where anyone can access them? And then how are we expected as the public to believe that some gentleman lighting a plastic chair in a shopping cart made something that was so combustible that the highway collapsed? Like, it's, it's ridiculous. Anywhere you go around the nation, homeless people live under overpasses. And they do all sorts of things. We've seen them burn, you know, wood inside of uh, those tall you know, containers to keep warm. Where ha- where else has this caused the overpass to collapse? How could a shopping cart, you know, cause something like this? I think it's ridiculous. I think it's unconscionable that they're going to use this young man and scapegoat him, destroying his life. And then they are all hedging this entire thing on the word of, there's no other way to describe it, an angry crackhead. I mean, there's hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, but it really has no fury like a crackhead who is not going to be allowed to smoke crack with you. And they admitted they were going to smoke crack and Ellerby decided he wasn't sharing his crack. And now these people are the witnesses against him. If one person is a crackhead and his word has no credibility, how then does the other person's word have credibility? And they are of equal, you know, character and they both indulge in crack activities. I mean, let's be real. And just to give you a little backstory on this, there is an article in Rolling Out magazine, and and they did a very good story on this. And they talked about the man's background and that he's developmentally disabled. But there's a white conservative man that did an interview, and he know Basil very well. In fact, he said he have known him for the past 15 years. And he went on to say that he allowed this man to live in his house for several months. He provided him with a job. And he said that he was always respectable and polite. And he trusted them around his wife and kids. And he find it kind of hard to believe that this man was capable of doing what they said he was doing. Another thing that he said is that his cognitive skills was off, that he had the uh, cognitive level of a 12 to 14 year old and that he would play with playstations and different things like that. My personal belief is this. There is a lot of money to be made from the building of that highway. I passed by there today and directly across from the highway, ironically, is a cement company. Now, I wonder if they got the contract for that job because it's all about money. Anytime there's a problem, you always follow the money. And this guy, I think, is being used as a political scapegoat. And the question to be asked is if he does go to jail... If he is found convicted, when he comes out of jail, he's still going to be homeless. So it doesn't 
address the underlying problem. Now, me and you, we were talking earlier and you were telling me about the GDOT and certain procedures that has to be done in order to um, get a highway approved. And you were talking about money that was allotted during the Obama administration. Can you go into that story and let our viewers know what it is that uh, GDOT does and how a situation like this plays into it? Absolutely. It's my pleasure. So I formerly was employed by the Georgia Department of Transportation. And yes, there is a process by which all infrastructure repairs, bridges, highways, overpasses, local roads, how those contracts come to be. Um, They start out with a proposal, and this initial process is called a let date. So a group of people sit around and say, this piece of property needs you know, repaving, this highway needs work, and they create an entire list of all the proposed projects. This is when all contractors, because the Georgia DOT doesn't physically do the work, they hire contractors to do the work. So this let date allows contractors to place bids for the proposed projects and to win those projects. That was part of my job in the DOT was to receive those bids to just, you know, so they can, well, the higher ups could make the decision on who got what bid. These things are typically from the date of the let date to the date of the start date can be five, 10 years. I would almost guarantee if someone were to go back and look in those records for the DOT for the let date for work on I-85 overpass, I can almost guarantee you that you would find some type of project associated with this that probably was never funded. And so they come up with these. This is my opinion, but I truly believe it. They come up with these catastrophes so that the federal government will kick in the funding and allow the work to be done. Now, when the federal government creates a state of emergency and kicks in the funding, they're going to get more revenue to fix that roadway than they would have gotten on an original proposal to fix the roadway. I promise they, they decided today to release a statement that they could finish the job in 10 weeks. A job of this magnitude to finish in 10 weeks would mean that you have plans already drawn up because the process of having the plans is a long invasive process. So I find it very strange that you could propose that you would complete this entire rebuild in a 10 week period when it takes almost that long just to gather materials, draw plans and things of that nature just is a little bewildering to me. And just the fact that Basil Ellerby is developmentally disabled, I believe they saw him as the appropriate fall guy. I think this is a continuation of the attack on homelessness because Atlanta is heavily gentrified. We know that. And if they continue to push the narrative of this scary black crackhead, people will jump and sign on board to close Peachtree and Pine, to close all the other homeless shelters in the area so that this city can be completely gentrified and the people who made Atlanta what it is can be moved out. And I just find it to be highly unfair. Now, one of the things that you said that I think is real profound and people need to pay attention to is that you said it's an eight to 10 year process. So this was strategically planned and we have to understand that we're dealing with a wicked government. Now, all y'all got to remember, we're in in the South and this is the the Bible thumping state. So we're going to go to the Bible where it tells you we're dealing with principalities and high places. 
That's that's exactly what's happening here. Certain municipalities in Atlanta refuse money that was allotted to build the highways because of Obama. And me and you talked about that. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So when Obama was designating funds for the Reinvestment Act um, to improve in local states, um, their well, in states, their local roads, their infrastructure, their highways and byways, many of the states took that money and were happy for it and upgraded their states because a lot of the um, infrastructure was getting old, it was wearing away. They knew that they had these massive water mains that probably were up for or were due to be, you know, repiped and, and upgraded, things of that nature. So Georgia was one of those states because it's so it's such a red state. They didn't want all of this improvement to bear the name of Obama. And so a large percentage of that money was rejected and sent back to the government. They didn't want the money because they didn't want to have to attribute this project was done by improvement funds from Obama. Now, there are certain places, certain cities and municipalities that did take the money. You will notice in if you go downtown Decatur, what is Candler Road, but it becomes South Candler Street. Once you get into downtown Decatur, you'll see how just beautifully paved and redone that entire segment is. And I remember those dollars were done with that reinvestment um, money from Obama. They didn't want that to be the case all over Georgia. And so they rejected the money. And I I wondered back then, how are they going to meet the financial obligation to fund all these projects that need to be done if you gave that money back? What method are they going to utilize to be able to get this money back? Once you rejected it, how do you get it back? I mean, it's so easy to see through now that they've caused a, called a state of emergency, caused this place to collapse and blow up with these flammable materials under public roadways, jeopardizing all of our lives. And now the federal government has kicked in way more dollars than they would have ever have gotten if they had just taken that tax money. And first and foremost, I think it's insulting to us as constituents, as citizens of this country to know that every day we travel the roads with our families and our, you know, our children and ourselves going to work, commuting. And at any given time, we could be subject to such a heinous, you know, disaster occurring with this fire, with these flammable liquids, with these these combustible materials that could take away our lives in your daily commute to work. Like, how is that your government protecting you? And, you know, the, the, the scripture you made reference to, that was Ephesians 6.12. We fight not against uh, flesh and blood, but against principalities and high places. And it's very profound that you brought that up because that is exactly what is taking place. I think it is incumbent upon us to wrap our arms around Basil Ellery and stand with him. And we, the, the, the long and short of it is what's happening to him could happen to any one of us. And who would stand with us? We have to make sure that we wrap our arms around him and make sure that he has due process. He, he, it was stated that he was developmentally disabled, so he cannot contribute to his own legal, his, you know, his legal defense. He can't honestly contribute in a way that would be beneficial to him. And so that's why it's important that we step in in the gap and make sure that he is protected and that he has due process under the law because of the nature of the collapse and the nature of the highly flammable materials and just that fire site. There is no DNA. There is no tangible stuff that the state could go 
in front of these jurors and this judge and beyond a reasonable doubt prove that this belongs to this man. So what are they going to use? We know there's a railroad job on the way. We have to make sure that we stand in the gap and make sure he's not alone. Speaking of standing in the gap, big shout out to Marcus Coleman with his organization, Saving Ourselves, and a lot of other uh, civic leaders and social justice lawyers that are standing up and they're getting behind this man and the community is getting behind him as well because the community is outraged. You know, we're outraged that these flammable uh, materials were stored for years possibly. I, I read one um, newspaper where it was reported that 11 years, then they said three years. But one year is too long. So people are outraged about that. And people are more so outraged that people will think that we are that dumb. That a fire can burn through concrete and steel and collapse a whole section of a highway. As if we believe that 911 propaganda. You know, we, we have to... Um, really hold these people feet to the fire and let them know that you know we're not we're not gonna go for this and we asking for a thorough investigation and i think that is being under undergoing right now with a lot of these lawyers that are taking this case in closing what do you think is gonna happen all right after 10 weeks the highway get rebuilt but a lot of people are saying that now they're going to try to make MARTA more accessible because they're looking at the infrastructure of the highway. And the other side of that is that people been trying to get MARTA to be more accessible, but there's been a pushback because of the race of people that live in the inner city and they don't want MARTA to go out into the suburbs. Do you think now that this happened that that may be a possibility? There are a few things that need to occur. First and foremost, this one company who they say that the majority of the material were fiber optics. In all of this, we cannot allow that major company that has been in Atlanta laying fiber optics all over the city and, and poorly so. They've caused other gas leaks and things of that nature. We cannot let Google escape this whole controversy. They are a major component to this controversy. We need to know why they were storing fiber optics to that degree that could cause that level of catastrophe to occur without securing them. It's nothing for them to put up a chain link fence and secure the area. The fact that they didn't do it, it leads us to believe were they allowing us to succumb to this situation for the benefit of money. Two, I find it very ironic that this occurs right before spring break when the roads will have less people traveling. I, I just, I, I don't take anything they do as a coincidence. I know that there is strategic planning in everything they do. I never said they were geniuses at it because they, they make very dumb mistakes like trying to tell us that some guy smoking crack caused the highway to collapse. Um, something else, we can't, I, I think some investigation needs to be done into this quote unquote witness that was originally a co-defendant. I think um, I saw her on the news giving interviews, a white lady. Uh, I think somebody needs to check her history. Did she have outstanding warrants? How did she go from being a, a co-defendant to a witness in no time? And she had the cleanest khakis on that I've ever seen anybody wear. Like she literally looked fresh out of the gap. So I think we need to look into that. Does she have any warrants that were all of a sudden mysteriously dropped 
for the benefit of her churning evidence and, and, and claiming to be a witness and blaming this on Basil Ellerby. And I mean, let's be real. There's nothing like a, a crackhead scorned. If a crackhead is angry at you, they'll say anything. And so how then, if we are not to believe him as a crackhead, why are we to believe her? Now, as far as Marta extending out into the suburbs, I believe that's exactly what they were trying to do, first and foremost, because the city is being gentrified. And so if you find people that formerly lived in the suburbs moving back into the city, where do they anticipate that the people who currently live in the city will move? Of course, they're going to switch places and they'll be shoved out into the suburbs. So they will extend Marta because if you gentrify the city and make it impossible for former residents of the city of Atlanta to now live in the communities that they were born and raised in, and you make this an upper echelon society, you're still going to need that support services of the people that work in your restaurants that clean your homes. You're still going to need them to have access to the city. And so it would suffice it to say that, yes, they will extend MARTA so that these people can commute and come back and work in the restaurants so these people can have their fancy restaurants. I mean, let's be real. I think it is completely along the lines of what's happening. And I know with this additional funding from the federal government for this you know, state of emergency, it will allocate more resources for them to be able to fund these projects. So it makes total sense. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break. The sister is revealing a lot of key details that are not currently being discussed in the news. You're not going to read this in the AJC. You're not going to hear this on CNN. But you heard it first right here on Necessary Blackness Podcast. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a situation that is making a lot of rounds and is making a lot of noise in New York City. And that's the closing of Rikers Island. We're going to talk about Richard Rikers, who he was, and why the closing of Rikers Island is a big thing to those that live in the metropolis or what I like to call Gotham City or the rotten apple. We're going to get to that, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be right back. This is Necessary Blackness Podcast. I am your host, Raheem Shabazz, and I'm right here with Ebony G. Necessary Blackness Podcast, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. with award-winning journalist and filmmaker, Raheem Shabazz. This podcast is only for those who are unapologetic because the mind of the conscious man or woman Recognize no monopoly on truth. Truth is relative and always to be sought. Hey Atlanta, have you heard? True Laundry Detergent is now offering free shipping in the Atlanta area. Just text the word TRUE to 404-493-0523 or give us a call. That's 404-493-0523. True Detergent is four times concentrated and perfect for those HE washers. Just one ounce removes dirt, brightens fabrics, and leaves each load with a clean, fresh scent. Best of all, True contains no animal products, and it's safe for sensitive skin. Follow us on social media, True Detergent ATL. Persons interested in broadcasting a commercial can reach us via email at necessaryblacknesspodcast at gmail.com. Necessary Blackness is distributed on all major podcast platforms iTunes, Stitcher, iHeart, SoundCloud, Podomatic, and Google Play. We'll also promote your business and products across our various social media networks, reaching over 100,000 people daily. Award-winning producer Raheem Shabazz continues the Elementary Genocide documentary series with the School to Prison Pipeline. 
That film exposes the social engineering done to African-American children in the school system. And his other film, Elementary Genocide 2, The Board of Education versus The Board of Incarceration, takes an even deeper look at the history of the American school system and how it was made to justify subjugating black Americans. These films are on track to be the most discussed films in black America. These films feature people like Dr. Boyce Watkins, Dr. Francis Kretz Welsing, and many, many more. The documentary is available right now at elementarygenocide.com. That's elementarygenocide.com. Another story that's making rounds is out of New York City, and that is the closing of Rikers Island. Now, for those that don't live in the big metropolis, uh, not for familiar with Rikers Island, this is one of the biggest correctional facilities in New York City. Now, Rikers Island is real peculiar, and if we're going to talk about Rikers Island, one of the things we need to do is go back to the history of Rikers Island. We need to know the person who it's named after, and that person, he's a white supremacist, and his name is Richard Rikers. And what he did was he labeled free blacks in New York as fugitives and sent them into slavery. Now, many of us, when we equate slavery, we equate it with the southern states. And a lot of people don't know that northern cities was just as complacent in the slave trade. Actually, in New York City, they had a slave market. And New York City held more slaves in the 18th century than any other city except for South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina to be exact. So Richard Rikers was a 19th century judge who sent free blacks back into slavery. And essentially what happened, they have a, a, a if you go online, you can read it. It, it was an 11-year-old uh, black boy that was brought before this judge and they said that he was an escaped slave he had no due process of the law and they sent him back to the south and he wasn't even from the south you know um and that was one of the things that he did uh he used his power and wealth as a presiding judge over new york city criminal court to see to it that African Americans was deemed future, fugitive runaway slaves without granting them due process to prove they was actually free. Um, now, the big story of the hour is that the mayor of New York decided that he's going to close Rikers Island and Rikers Island has a history of inmates being abused, uh, civil liberal rights, every type of rights you can imagine has been violated on this island. So it's a celebration for those that are incarcerated, returning citizens, and anybody that's fighting on the right side of justice. So, Ebony, what are your thoughts on Rikers Island and how do you feel the impact of it being closed will affect New York City? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Give us your thoughts. Okay, well, I think the closing of Rikers Island is a phenomenal thing. I happen to have had quite a number of friends who, at one point or another in their lives, ended up on Rikers Island, spent an extended period of time there, or a short period of time. But by everybody's account, Rikers Island will forever live in infamy. It is a hellhole. Um, 
the fact that Mayor de Blasio had the wherewithal to even come up with or have the discussion to close it is humongous. Everyone has known that Rikers Island was a disaster. Every presiding mayor, every judge that sends an inmate there, everyone knows that Rikers is the correction system gone wrong. However, no one had the courage or the wherewithal to stand stand up and, and shed light. Now, I would definitely, I think I would, we would be completely remiss if we did not mention a name that profoundly, I believe, had everything to do with this monumentous day, and that is Khalif Browder. Khalif Browder was a 16-year-old young man from New York, falsely accused of stealing a backpack and sent to Rikers Island and kept there for an extended period of time without any due process, without having been convicted, without anything. He didn't even see the judge for three years. He was kept in isolation for, I think they said nine months to a year straight. And that, and he was a 16 year old boy. It, it just destroyed this young man. And bit by bit, he was violated by staff members as well as other inmates destroyed the psyche of this young man until there was literally nothing left. But he refused to accept a guilty plea to be sent home. He was steadfast in his, you know, his his constitution that he was not going to accept a guilty plea because he was not guilty and he wanted to shed light on what was taking place. And so I would say this is nothing but the spirit of the ancestors and Khalif Browder and his mama that brought this forward. Thank God that his story came to light and people got to see on such a grand scale the disaster that has been Rikers Island. So I'm happy that it's being closed. I think if they engaged in less mass incarceration and stopped making everything illegal because your skin is black, they wouldn't have as many prisoners in Rikers anyway. Um, if the city would take full responsibility for their mentally ill and house them in, you know, mental health facilities and not just push them out to the street and, and cause them to be in situations where they're not getting support services and they end up in jail, the, the coffers in the jailhouse would not be so full. If they resorted to more community police, uh, community incarceration, like I know they reopened Brooklyn house, which is a, a correctional facility on that's Atlantic Avenue, right? Atlantic Avenue and J Street in Brooklyn. They reopened that. Um, and I think that's phenomenal. It allows for families to stay connected. It allows for children. You know, unfortunately, some people will end up in the penal system. However, just the trek to Rikers Island and the money that it would cost and the, the time that it cost for parents and families to get back and forth was exhaustive. If you have a father who has been committed to his family and for whatever reason he ended up in the penal facility, however, his family wanted to stay engaged, it would be nothing for if he was from Brooklyn for them to go down to Atlantic Avenue and see him and keep the family engaged. So when he came back out of jail, he could reintegrate into his family and there would be no, you know, that that void would not be created. I think if they stop railroading our black men and women and incarcerating incarcerating everybody, they don't need to have all these, you know, correctional beds. So hooray to de Blasio, hooray to Khalif Browder, hooray to everyone who had a hand in the closing of Rikers. And I want to just say that we have to understand that America's prison system needs to be dismantled. And I think the first step 
is Rikers Island. And as a black man, I'm of the belief of Frederick Douglass. And he said this in 1867. He said, a man's rights rest in three boxes. That's the jury box, the ballot box, and the cartridge. So that is what's going on today. You know, if we're not being gunned down in the streets, then we're being shackled and trained and chained and sent off to these plantations that are under the cold word of prison systems. So not only do we have to uh, dismantle the prison system, we have to get the political system in order. And we have to do that by getting courageous individuals like the mayor of New York City that's going to say the hell with the union. He's going to do what's right and he's going to be on the right side of history. And with that, I'm going to say peace, empower black family. This is Raheem Shabazz of Necessary Blackness Podcast. Ebene G, you got some last closing words? I do. And I just want to say that Mayor de Blasio has proven himself when he was in the city council and Bloomberg voted himself in for a third illegal term. There were only two city council people that voted against that. And that was Mayor, uh, the now Mayor de Blasio and the another female. She was the black, uh, black female. I, her name escapes me at this moment. But they were the only two that voted to not give Bloomberg a third term and in turn give themselves raises and he has proven himself to me and I stand behind this decision persons interested in broadcasting a commercial can reach us via email at necessaryblacknesspodcast at gmail.com Necessary Blackness is distributed on all major podcast platforms iTunes, Stitcher, iHeart, SoundCloud, Podomatic, and Google Play. We'll also promote your business and products across our various social media networks, reaching over 100,000 people daily.